Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our study this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are in fellowship, ready to focus on God's word and to uh, be in a position where God the Holy Spirit can use it profitably in our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word that, that as we go through study from Genesis to Revelation, we come to understand who you are. We see how you work in the lives of people. We see how you work in the lives of history. We see your plan and we see how we fit within your plan and how our individual spiritual lives are just as much a, a part of that historical plan and historical outworking as the, the macro history that we study as we go through the different eras and, and ages and millennia in human history. Father, we pray that as we study these events that transpired some 3,000 years ago that we'll recognize and Realize that these are recorded here for our purpose, for our spiritual life, and that this, these Old Testament events were in the forefront of the Apostle Paul's mind when he said that all Scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. He was primarily thinking of the canon that existed at that time, which was the Old Testament. And so this is extremely relevant to us teaches us crucial principles, how to handle adversity and how to live even in the midst of national crisis, which certainly is a term that it can apply to our situation and even international crisis. So, Father, as believers, we know that we stand out. We are distinct. We have a unique role and a tremendous privilege to be uh, living for you to be examples of stability and steadiness as we rest and relax on in your power and your provision, your plan and your promises. And we pray that as we study tonight that we'll be challenged in these areas by the example of Elijah in the Old Testament. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in 1 Kings 17. We're looking at the crisis that occurs in the northern kingdom that is primarily a result of God's discipline on the nation, but the ultimate cause is the negative volition of the people in the northern kingdom. They have rejected God. They've rejected his plan, his provisions. They have operated on the fantasy that every unbeliever automatically operates on when he rejects truth and substitutes his own imagination for handling the situations and the crises and the various uh, things that happen in life. And that is the standard uh, modus operandi of every single unbeliever. And when you get cultures like we have in this world, whether it's a, whether it's a, a Eastern culture or whether it's what's happening in uh, the West, in Western civilization, or now that we've developed these real, really global types of of uh, uh, interactions between all of these nations, we recognize that um, whatever is going on in the world affects everybody. And things can happen in 
far-flung places that we know very little about and the shallow media doesn't report on, and yet they have a tremendous impact on what goes on in a day-to-day world. And we live in a world today that is characterized more and more by governments, by powers, by political elite, uh, business elite, that are far removed from the absolutes of God's word and operating at levels of arrogance that most of us can't even imagine. And uh, the result of that is always going to bring tremendous crisis into people's lives. That's what happened with Jeroboam I as they rebel against God and set up their own religious system in opposition to the Mosaic system. It happened again in an intensified way as Ahab, when Ahab came to the throne and, and uh, uh, he had been married to uh, Jezebel by his father to set up a, a treaty uh, in violation of God's word, to set up a treaty with the uh, uh, king of Tyre, and it brought all of the, the uh, fertility religions, the prophets of, and, of Baal and the priests of Baal and the priests of the Asherah into the northern kingdom. And so the crisis that occurs is not a crisis of meteorology. It's not a crisis of economics. It's not a crisis of politics. It's a crisis of spirituality. And it's because God is rejected. When you reject God as your ultimate starting point, something has to fill that vacuum. And so man will put something there. Something in the creation is going to fill that Vacuum, and then once you begin to think and operate out from that, the one, the first things that begin to go are your divine institutions. Divine institution number one is individual responsibility and accountability. Primarily, that is toward God, but it affects all the other decisions that we make in life. The second divine institution is marriage. The marriage is designed to be between one man and one woman. It is the uh, it, it is the framework for raising a family, for education, for passing that on to the next generation. Uh, so, family is the third divine institution. The fourth divine institution is the nation, and there's a progression in these divine institutions. Or the, excuse me, the fourth divine institution is human government. There's a progression in these, so that when you start seeing a breakdown in individual responsibility and accountability, where uh, something either parents or government or an international body begins to come in and to uh, try to negate the impact of bad decisions so that when people make foolish or foolish, wrong, bad decisions that cause economic crisis in, for example, a company, when the government comes in and says, oh, well, we can't let all these people hurt and suffer because of your bad decisions. We're going to come in and we're going to rescue you. Then where are they going to get the money to do that? Well, instead of the employees of that particular company being the ones that are going to hurt, now they're going to hurt, Put actually just put the hurt on everybody else because they're going to come to you and to me and to everybody else and say, we're just going to take money out of your pocket all these things start steamrolling in many different directions. And it, 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 once you break down individual responsibility, then that ends up breaking down various aspects of marriage. Uh, when marriage begins to break down, that breaks down education within the home. When you don't have education taking place primarily within the home, then um, that information is not passed on, important information is not passed on to the next generation, produces one generation after another that it becomes increasingly ignorant of, of, the, of our heritage, uh, increasingly unable to think critically, and the results then affect the nation and the health of the nation as, as a whole. And we live in a world today where many people think that what really matters is just economics, what matters is good economic theory, whether it's capitalism or socialism or Marxism. I'm, obviously, you know where I stand on that and where the Bible stands on that. But it does, I'm just saying for an example, people 
think that if we just had a great economic system, we could solve the problems. And what we see more and more in the Bible is that the starting point isn't economics. It's not politics. It's the divine institutions. And the divine institutions are fundamentally social and not legal, political, or economic. Because the very core of man's relationship to God is this this social element. Now, it's integrally and intimately connected to economics. But when you think about what comes first, it's the social, not the economic. You can't split those. So you can't come along like many people want to do today. You hear people say, well, I'm I'm an economic conservative, but I'm a social liberal. And they think they can just separate the two. You can't do that. If you're a social liberal and you believe in uh, changing the definition of marriage and uh, legalizing homosexual uh, relationships, then that is going to have economic consequences. If you believe in establishing a morality, a moral system that's taught in the public schools that doesn't teach moral absolutes and that it is wrong to engage in promiscuous sexual activity and premarital sexual activity, then the result is going to be a high rate of, of teenage pregnancy. And that's going to have drastic and has ha- had drastic cons- economic consequences for the nation. So social policy impacts economic reality, and we can't get away from that. And when you look at the Trinity itself, it is a social organization. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Father and the Son love the Holy Spirit. There is this eternal uh, social relationship uh, within the Trinity that is foundational to the uh, understanding of who God is as a person. And then what God does, what that triune God does, that's economics. That is his administration. The word economics comes from the Greek word oikonomia, which is the same word we use, where we get the word dispensation has to do with an administration of something. So th- there's a priority to the social. And this just runs completely counter to uh, the kind of thinking that comes from studying creation empirically going out looking at, 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 at society, looking at data from an empirical viewpoint and then extrapolating to conclusions, which is the process that you use in many areas of knowledge, which is valid in areas of knowledge. But if you don't start with God ultimately to provide your framework, then you're going to have problems. And so what we see in Israel in the Mosaic Law is that God says, if you blow this primary principle, it's so primary, it's the first commandment that you will have no other gods before me. That if you violate this commandment and you get sucked into worshiping the false gods of the pagans around you, then the result is going to be that I will uh, discipline you in various ways, and many of those ways included uh, economics, and so that's where we see the nation at that time, at this time, in the ninth century BC, is going through a national crisis. This famine that is brought on because of their rejection of God, and the key person at the at the center of this whole thing is Elijah. Elijah is called the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead. His name means my God is Yahweh, and he is, and that is, uh, it, it foreshadows the emphasis in these chapters, that Yahweh alone is God, not Baal, not uh, any of the other religions or gods of the ancient world, not any of the things man wants to worship today, which technology, money, material success, uh, worshiping man as the, uh, ultimate in the chain of evolution. The only God is Yahweh. Elijah comes from the town of, uh, it's, he's called the Tishbite, and there's great debate over the meaning of that. I have up here a guess as to the location of Tishba. He is a Gileadite, 
There's debate over the meaning of Tishba, whether this was actually the name of a settlement in the Transjordan area, that's the area to the east of the Jordan River, or whether it is related to a noun that means the settlers, in which case he was a, he was a settler in an area that had not been developed yet, and so it would just be saying that he was a settler in the area of Gilead. And so he's not far from Samaria. This is only a distance of maybe uh, 50 miles at the most. And so he is going to show up at the capital of the northern kingdom, and he is going to challenge Ahab with God's plan. And so he says to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives. And from the very beginning, he is structuring everything he says as a counterpoint to the entire way of thinking that has come to dominate the northern kingdom. He's not going to validate any of their presuppositions. He's not going to legitimize any uh, area by seeking a neutral common ground. Often that's what happens between believers and unbelievers, especially in witnessing situations where people think, well, I've got to find some area of common ground, and then we're going to find an area of neutrality, and then I can begin to communicate with an unbeliever. The trouble is that we don't live in a in a universe where there is neutrality. It's either God's way or man's way. There's there's no area of neutrality, and and 50 years ago, that message didn't resonate real well with a lot of Christians because we lived in a in a world and a culture in in the United States that had so much uh, residual, so many residual characteristics from the Reformation that people thought the culture was a Christian culture, and so you didn't see the, the, the sharp contrast between uh, the paganism of the, of the culture, the world around them, and the church. Whereas today, as we've gone 50 years further down the, the road, as uh, Robert Bork said, we, we're... That slouching to Gomorrah has now been a, a slide, a quick slide to Gomorrah, and we're going there as fast as we can we can possibly go. And the result of that is that it's becoming more and more clear that there really isn't a neutral common ground that the believer and the unbeliever can go to and view the same way. There, there, there isn't. And so his starting point here is... The God of Israel lives. He's a living God, and we're going to start there. That is our understanding of reality, and because of that, he—I mean, Elijah is basically saying because he's a living God, he's true to his word, his promises in the Mosaic Law, and because of that, I know that he is going to function in a certain way as he promised to bring discipline on the nation and withhold rain. And so he makes this this claim. In contrast, Ahab is trusting Baal, who is supposed to be the god of rain and thunder and productivity and agricultural prosperity. And so part of this is a direct challenge to the system of thought that is dominating in the north. And we could boil it down this way. We could say that what Elijah is basically saying is, okay, you have your view and I have my view. I'm going to show you that if you start with my presupposition that God is a living God, then we're, and you start with your presupposition that Baal is the God of rain, we're going to see who can actually live consistently on the basis of their presupposition. And that's a great apologetic strategy when you're talking or dialoguing with an unbeliever or a Christian who is completely confused by paganism and say, okay, well, let's just take that idea that you've got that the, that the universe, it just came about by pure random chance. It just happened. Okay, so we're all just part of a great cosmic accident that somehow there was an electronic discharge and some uh, protoplasmic blob just suddenly began to uh, gain a little life and split and the cells began to split and over millions of years somehow consciousness and life develops. So you're just a cosmic accident and I'm just a cosmic accident and that means that there's no real ultimate right or wrong, no real ultimate values 
Now, you live as if they're consistently on a presupposition that there are no universals and no absolutes. And you can't do it. And what you're showing is that the unbeliever, on the basis of his basic assumptions about life, can't live out consistently. And as soon as you start making certain statements, such as God is the only way to heaven, they're going to come along and say, well, that's dangerous or that's crazy or you, um, uh, you shouldn't be allowed to say those kinds of things. And that betrays uh, some sort of ethical system where they're making decisions that you're wrong, that we as believers are wrong and they're right. Well, where do you get the, the, your ultimate value system of right or wrong? If, if we all start with just this accidental protoplasmic blob, how can you get to a point where you can make absolute statements that I'm right or I'm wrong and you're right, Mr. Pagan Evolutionist? They can't. See, that's where Elijah is going to go with this. He's going to live on the basis of the fact that he serves a living God and that living God is going to take care of him. That living God is going to provide for him in these different circumstances in by the brook and later in Zarephath and ultimately in the great showdown that comes in chapter 18. And he's going to show that the priests of Baal are built, have built their whole system on something false and uh, fraudulent. And for a while it's going to look like he's having success with the people, but the people are fickle and they will follow whatever seems to stimulate their emotions at that particular time. So he is showing that, that this whole episode is a, is a direct frontal confrontation with the thought system of the uh, pagan uh, Baal system and way of thought. Now, God had warned Israel about this, that this is the core problem that man has going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, that man wants to substitute something, something in the created order, for God and worship that. Reject God, suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and he's going to, as Paul says in Romans, Romans 1, he's going to, uh, he's going to worship the creature rather than, uh, the creator. And so I just went back to Deuteronomy and pulled some verses out of Deuteronomy to show you this pattern how Moses warned the Jews about this before they went into the land. Isn't it interesting how many times we have to go back to Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy was a, a message. It was the parting sermon, you might say, from Moses and parting challenge before he uh, left to uh, die and be taken to heaven. Deuteronomy 6.14 we read, You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. Verse, chapter 7, verse 4, For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. So there's the prohibition of idolatry in 6.14, and the explanation for that in Deuteronomy 7.4, that they will, this will turn your children away from God. There is, children in, indicates what divine institution? Family. And so once the parents shift away in their positive volition, then that sets up a bad example. There's no longer training, spiritual training within the home. And then the sons and daughters take that to the next level. That's why you end up having a four or five generation cycle Frequently, and I think the last uh, great generation in this nation was probably not the World War II generation, but their parents, the World War I generation. And the World War, and we may even have to go back before that, but the World War II generation did a great job having been trained to handle adversity in the Depression. And then they went off to war and they did a great job in the war. And then they came home and failed a prosperity test and completely failed the parenting test and gave birth to all the baby boomers who then uh, marched in all the peace rallies in, uh, in around the country during the Vietnam era. 
and then they gave birth to the generation Xers, and it just gets increasingly worse. Deuteronomy 11, verses 16 through 18. Beware that your hearts are not deceived. See, the ultimate issue is deception, and here it, the heart stands for the thinking of the soul, the mentality of the soul. You can't deceive emotions. You can't deceive other elements. You deceive the thought system. Beware that your hearts, that is the thinking element in your soul, are not deceived and that you do not turn away. That's volition. Volition integrates to thinking. So thinking the wrong thoughts, you choose the wrong course. That you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Worshiping them means you look to them for meaning, purpose in life, for happiness, for being able to solve your problems. Don't turn and serve other gods and think that they're going to be able to give you prosperity, that they're going to be able to provide for your uh, future retirement, and that they're going to give you, uh, provide stability in your 401k and provide you with a job uh, next week, next month, or next year. Verse 17, or if you do this, there are spiritual consequences that occur, or shall we say there are physical, economic, political, and social consequences that flow from making bad choices in the realm of who you're going to worship. Verse 17, or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. We've studied this phrase before. Know that these terms, anger of the Lord, represent the judicial action of God in time. The anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. That's exactly the scenario that we're seeing in 1 Kings 17. Verse 18, you shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. What's he talking about there? The idea of impressing it on your soul is making this the highest priority in life so that you retrain your thinking to think biblically. And if you've ever gone through any sort of rigorous uh, training exercise, whether it's in the military or whether it's in athletics or whether it's dance or whether it's anything that you want to be very good at. You think about somebody who's a magician and how many times they have to practice uh, sleight-of-hand tricks to develop the uh, dexterity in their fingers in order to be able to pull off a card trick or a coin trick or something like that. You just have to practice it over and over and over and over again until it it is just ingrained deeply uh, in their muscles and in their in their thinking, so that they can do it. That's the idea here, and we we have a we we've developed a view in Christianity where we think that gosh, if I just show up at church for a thirty minute sermonette on Sunday morning, that's enough. It sort of gets me jacked up a little bit, so that I can make it through the next week. But that has never been God's view of the training process. And really, if you think about the role of the pastor as it's exp- expressed in Scripture. It is a role that is, first and foremost, a leadership role. And that leadership is related to training. A pastor is, in some ways, related to a a training officer, a drill instructor. He is to train people how to think, to train people on what to think over and over again. He's not the, um, I mean, the model today is that the pastor is like the CEO. The pastor is the uh, administrator. The pastor is the counselor that we go to. But he is, and he's the great motivator. But he is not the trainer. And there's a huge difference between thinking about training people to do something and just simply motivating them. And motivation doesn't help people when they get in the crisis and the crunch, I don't care how motivated, um, what's this guy's, uh, Chesley Sullivan was in life. That didn't get him through the crisis when that United Airlines uh, plane hit those geese last week or two, two or three weeks ago 
and he had to put down in the Hudson. What enabled him to do what he did was that this man was dedicated to the very core of his being to training. He's written training manuals for pilots on how to handle various crises. He had mastered, he had devoted himself to training and and working out drills on exactly what to do in the midst of a crisis. And he was interviewed uh, the other day. Some of you may have seen it. There there have been several different interviews that I've seen. And uh, one of these um, uh, silly, shallow, superficial uh, interviewers they have on the uh, what passes for news on in the morning asked him so what, weren't you concerned about the, the people in the back his answer was no I had to think through the drill he had to think he couldn't get caught up in emotion or subjectivity because he knew that in the crisis what matters is to be able to think clearly in a relaxed manner and go through the mental checklist of everything that he needed to do in order to make sure that that plane sat down on the river with the wings level and the front up just a little bit so that when when they landed, they would be able to survive. And it's a great example of the fact that a person to go through crisis has to be trained. And we have to live on that training and execute the training no matter how we feel. I'm sure he didn't feel that morning, if you'd asked him before he got on the plane, he didn't, might have said, well, you know, I don't feel like handling a crisis today. Most of us don't feel like handling a crisis when they come. That's why they're a crisis, but we have to go through that uh, pre-flight drill again and again and again. My uncle was a uh, was an instructor. He was an Air Force pilot in World War II and continued to uh, served in the Air Force until he was uh, his 20 years were in. He retired as a lieutenant colonel and then went to uh, work. He was a pilot, navigator. He did everything for United and, and was a trainer. And one time when I was about 16 years old, he took me up to the uh, training facility that United Airlines has in Denver and showed me their, and all the, uh, the, the sim- simulators that they have. These things are just incredible. And how many hours... A pilot has to be in those simulators going through every conceivable scenario possible. Well, that's what a believer needs to do. Is And you can only do that. A pastor can only do so much. But once a pastor teaches the principles and the promises that God has in his word, then we need to get involved in the process through through thinking, through meditation, thinking through God's word, on how to apply these things in our life and looking at what the situations and the challenges we face in life and say, well, this is God's way to do it and this is man's way to do it. I'm going to choose to do God's way. I don't feel like it. I don't want to do it. But we lay out a plan of action and then we execute the plan step by step over and over and over again until it becomes uh, second nature. So that's the idea in impressing these words of mine on your heart, they need to be ingrained in the, the thinking part of the mind, on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be a, as frontals on your forehead. Now, that's not to be taken literally. That's the phylacteries that you'll see Orthodox Jews wearing a little leather box on the back of their hand and on their forehead, and inside those little boxes they have a little copy uh, some of these key scriptures like this, uh, and th- they take that literally. The idea here is not that. It is that your soul becomes saturated, so saturated with the word of God that God and his word are more real to you in the crisis than the circumstances and the situation and the emotions. Because what we have to realize is when we're not thinking God's way, we're thinking Satan's way. Those are the options. And that's why Moses says in Deuteronomy 32, 17, that those who are sacrificing to idols are sacrificing to demons who are not God. They're they're just worshiping these idols of stone and wood and metal, but they are ultimately demonic. And so there's a real choice here, and that's the choice between life and death. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, Moses says, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore 
choose life. Every day you have decisions to make as to what that priority is in your life. Is it going to be the Word of God, or is it going to be the details and the circumstances and the pleasures uh, of your life? Deuteronomy 32, uh, 47 uh, states the same, uh, same thing. Now, the challenge in the northern kingdom is that they have completely rejected God. He is no longer a reality to them. He is simply one of a number of options and a number of explanations. So when uh, Elijah begins and he says, as the Lord God of Israel lives, he is throwing out a challenge. He is making theology the issue. I just love to see that happen up in Washington, D.C., Just love it if somebody who had some uh, national exposure would stand up and say, you know, the issue here is theology. It's not economics. It's not any of these other things. And until we get our theology right and start worshiping God, then it doesn't matter what else we do because we're living in self-deception. So it's, it's that constant counterpoint to human uh, to human viewpoint. And as I pointed out before, the human viewpoint here is dominated by the system of Baal, the weather god. wonder if he get brought global warming. Isn't it interesting how meteorology sort of keeps cropping up here or there along the way? And it, so how you view the weather and the weather systems is ultimately going to be related to your metaphysic. That is what you think ultimate reality is. Now, somebody ought to do some work with that. So these are the options. We've gone through this before, that on the one side you have an absolute God who's the creator God who is completely distinct from the universe. That's the left side of the chart. That black horizontal line there represents an absolute categorical distinction between the creator and the creature. But what man wants to do is define reality uh, as it is on the right side, that there's no distinction between the creator and the creature. It's all one continuum, and we just have to, um, we can really control things, and God is just, if there is a God, he's just a, a super Man, he's just a man with more abilities. But we get into Deuteronomy 17, and the next phrase, Elijah says, this is the God before whom I stand. This directly relates to the first divine institution. He is thinking in terms of his personal accountability to God. God has called him as a prophet, given him a mission why God chose Elijah as opposed to one of the other 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal, uh, we don't know. Maybe it had to do with aspects of his personality, his training, his background, but God had prepared him, and this was the man that he was going to use, and Elijah knew the Word of God. He knew the Mosaic Law inside and out because he had impressed it upon his soul so that he could look at the circumstances that the nation was facing and he could interpret those economic, meteorological, sociological realities on the basis of the Word of God and arrive at truth. And when you can't, when you don't start with God, you can't arrive at a true truth conclusion. And so he makes the statement in ver- at the end of verse 1 that there shall be no dew nor rain these years except at my word. This is what God says. So this is going to bring about a direct challenge to Baal, who is the god of thunder, the god of rain, the god who is uh, going to bring rain at the right times, the early rains in the fall, the late rains in the spring, at just the right time so that you can have agricultural productivity uh, in Israel. Without agricultural productivity, you're going to have various consequences that come as a result of drought. Now, isn't it interesting what's going on uh, if you haven't followed the meteorological cycles lately, and I'm not talking about global warming, but... Texas is, looks like we're getting, we're going into a, a drought stage. Some many areas of the state are in extreme drought right now. 
Uh, we're close to the Gulf. We're just in serious drought. And, uh, and it's going to be interesting to see how long this lasts. This is going on at the same time that we are facing economic, uh, international economic crises. But when you have a drought, it begins to impact uh, the, your, of course, your agriculture and your agricultural production so that your yield in terms of all of your different plants that are, that you're, uh, producing, your yield begins to, uh, drop off significantly. This means that because there is a lower supply, if the population is static, you're going to have a greater demand. And so the cost of food and food stuff is going to increase and it will increase dramatically. So you're going to spend larger and larger amounts of your uh, monthly budget on food. Now, if you're an agricultural, agricultural based, uh, economy, then what that also means is that you're not going to have much money to spend because you're going to realize less from your sale because you don't have very much produce to take to market. So you're going to have less money to spend. And since they didn't have credit at the time, uh, when they ran out of money, they just couldn't buy anything. And they just started to go hungry. And then you began to look at your cattle. You began to look at your two donkeys and, and whatever you have and think, well, okay, I guess it's time to... Uh, uh, kill the animals and start eating them. Well, now you've cut into your your basic production source. So you can't you don't, you kill the donkeys. You can't you can't um, uh, work the fields as well. And so there are continuing things that begin to to happen uh, in terms of your uh, of the soil and a drought uh, begins to dry. The ground dries up and becomes very hard so that it's difficult to break the soil in order to plant the seed. And then if it gets extremely dry and you get a windstorm, then your topsoil blows away, which is what happened in the United States with the uh, dust bowls that occurred in the in the uh, late 20s and, and uh, early 30s. So there was a related uh, drought in many areas of the uh, center of the United States at the same time that we were going through the economic downturn uh, in, in the uh, Great Depression. So you get an increased cost of food, increased cost of production of food, the loss of animals. You have increased expense at feeding the animals uh, that you do have. Uh, you have a tremendous uh, impact on uh, just the habitation for the animals because they can't get water where they normally get water, so they begin to migrate uh, maybe out of your country. So you think you can go hunt game. Well, the game is gone somewhere else because there's no water here. You can't go fish because there's nothing left in the rivers and and the lakes, and so there's no fish to fish for. result of this affects your nutrition it affects your health. People begin to develop various diseases. Their immune system begins to break down because they don't have the proper nutrition, and this increases uh, health care costs. And all of a sudden, everybody starts screaming about the need for uh, government to supply health care because everybody's getting sick and you have uh, various uh, diseases and even new diseases uh, can develop. You can also develop a mass migration. People begin to leave the area. And that we know also happened. Believers who were positive lived, still lived in the north, headed south. And so when you start having people leave, what happens to housing values? Uh, there's no longer anybody to sell the house to, so your property values go down and you just get into this uh, downward uh, spiral of... Uh, of economic decline, and that is exactly what God hit the northern, the northern kingdom with. And Elijah has to live right in the midst of that, because God is going to use him and provide for him. And this tells us how important it is for us to realize that as we look at what is going on in our nation and internationally that God's not going to provide for us by limiting the impact 
of whatever is happening around us so that somehow we're going to skate by without any anything happening to us. Now, some people may ha- may uh, feel the impact in a greater way than others, but we could all feel some serious impact from this, and I don't think that any of us are are as aware of just the dynamics that are going on around the world because the, the news media just skates all over the surface and doesn't really uh, investigate things very well. Most of them don't understand economics anyway, so if they were exposed to a lot of information, they couldn't get it right. Well, let's look at a couple of uh, important points we have to think about in terms of facing, understanding, and applying this passage. First of all, Elijah is going to be taken through three tests in this chapter. Three tests, and the purpose for these tests is to train him and prepare him for what's coming. He doesn't know about what's going to happen in 1 Kings 18. See, we look at it, and we know what's going to happen on the top top of Mount Carmel, and we're going to understand the tremendous victory that he's going to have up there. But he doesn't see that coming. God has to prepare him, and what prepares him isn't simply going through the test. What prepares him is going through the test and handling it by applying doctrine. So it's the old principle that practice doesn't make perfect, because you can practice the wrong thing and just ingrain uh, error and mistakes into your, your thinking. Perfect practice makes perfect. And so the only way for Elijah to get trained to do what he's going to do on first King in, in chapter 18 on Mount Carmel is to handle these smaller crises, these smaller tests, uh, con- by consistently applying the word. So each of these tests, though, can be understood to be just a hopeless situation that we're facing circumstances where we don't see any kind of human solution, no solution whatsoever. And so we wonder just how we're going to survive. And two things, two principles we have to look at. I have on this slide, when life seems hopeless, two points. First of all, God is preparing you for a future ministry of some kind. You don't know what it is. This is what Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians 1.4 when he refers to God as the one who comforts us in all our affliction, that's adversity, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And I'm not any different from any of you. I have gone through times in my life when I just wonder what in the world the next day is going to bring because I don't think I can handle anything else. And many of us have gone through that. And after we get down the road and some distance, we're able to look back and see how we grew spiritually during that time and that now God uses that in many different ways. In that process, I matured. In that process, you matured. And now God is able to use that so uh, when you, somewhat, God brings somebody into your uh, life that is going through something similar, you're able to help them apply doctrine to that situation. And you can bring to bear on that situation your own experience and your own spiritual growth and your own focus on the Lord. The second thing is that God's teaching you about grace. Anytime we're in terribly tough times, when we don't want to deal with tomorrow, we don't want to face tomorrow, when the crisis is coming, when things seem hopeless, we need to be driven back to what Paul talks about in Second Corinthians chapter 11, that God's grace is sufficient for us because that's what God is teaching us. And you can't go anywhere in the Christian life until you get to the point where you realize that God's grace is sufficient for you. And this is what Paul is referring to in 2 Corinthians 1.5 when he says, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. In other words, we can only realize how to handle these circumstances as we come to grips with God's grace provision as seen and how Jesus Christ handled all of the adversity that came his way when he went to the cross, and God's grace was sufficient for him, so God's grace is uh, sufficient for us. Now, 
The second thing, in each of these cases, Elijah will pass the test so that, in effect, he becomes uh, what he was not when he first faced Ahab. He's going to go through a spiritual growth process for three and a half years. God's going to take him through uh, advanced prophet training. And he's going to learn how to trust the Lord in ways that he had never trusted the Lord before. And that is going to enable him to face the 850 false prophets on Mount Carmel. Third thing is that we see here is that Elijah is going to be the leader of the nation and lead them in a tremendous revival. But he doesn't see that in chapter 17. We don't see what the future holds. We don't see the potential, the possibilities of how God is taking us through this crisis now. That if we pass the test, if we apply the word, and if we grow, the potential of God's use of us down the road in the future. And once we go through the test and we blow it, God's just going to take us back through those tests again. Now, I'm beginning to learn in my life that I don't like to do repeats. And I hope I can learn to get it right maybe the second or third time and not the ninth or tenth time. So we need to focus on applying doctrine. Fourth principle that we see here in terms of application now is that because of apostasy in the United States, we're facing problems that are identical to the kind of problems that they faced in the northern kingdom of Israel. We've got the same apostasy working. We've got economic crisis working. We've got paganism working. All of these things are are operational, and so we're going to learn how to handle this by using the the faith rest drill. And what we discover is at the foundation of this, this point number five, is that the emphasis in 1 Kings 17 is the importance of logistical grace and learning to trust in God's grace provision moment by moment. That's the difficulty. And it's always hard to learn to rest in God's grace in any kind of disaster Uh, crisis, adversity, whatever it may be, just to stop, to relax, and to think our way through certain promises and certain passages so we can get our our emotions under control and become uh, stabilized. We don't know all the facts. We don't know half of what's going on. We don't know just that. I don't even think we know a raindrop of what's going on. And we live in a world right now where most of us are aware of the economic situation that's happening internationally, and it's it's completely out of our control. We have people who are elected officials in Washington who are making the most outrageous decisions you can possibly imagine, who are deciding that the best way to handle a crisis caused by debt is to go into further debt. And many other, and, and, and instead of creating solutions that would truly uh, in some ways, stimulate the economy and provide jobs. They're just uh, they're just adding more of their uh, ag- local regional agenda pork onto these programs that that won't do anything. We don't realize, but God's still in control, and that's one thing we can't forget: is God is still in control of these circumstances, and He is going to bring about exactly what He wants to bring about. Now. Uh, today I heard on the radio, and I was sent some information via email, and there was an interview on C-SPAN yesterday with a Democrat representative, and I didn't get where he was from, Paul uh, Kanjorski. And in this interview, he explains uh, how the Federal Reserve told the Congress members about a, quote, tremendous drawdown of money market accounts in the United States this occurred in, on September 18th or 19th last year. Now, most of you were a little distracted about that time. We were, we didn't have any power. You couldn't watch television. You couldn't check, uh, the stock market. You couldn't get online. Uh, we were scattered because of Hurricane Ike. So we, we didn't have any idea what was going on. He says there was a tremendous drawdown of money market accounts. Now, these aren't like the individual money market accounts that you and I have. These are the, the huge money market accounts that brokerage firms have. 
to the tune of $550 billion was taken out of these accounts in about three or four hours on that, that morning. And according to Kanjorski, this electronic transfer occurred over the period of an hour or two, and it gets worse. Kanjorski paraphrased the following disclosure by uh, Bernanke, who's the uh, Secretary of Treasury at that time. He said, on Thursday, September 18th at 11 a.m., the Federal Reserve noticed a tremendous drawdown of money market accounts in the U.S. to the tune of $550 billion, and that this was all going out in a matter of an hour or two. The Treasury opened up its window to, to help and pumped $105 billion into the system, quickly realizing that they could not stem the tide. Uh, there was an electronic run on the banks, and they decided to shut the entire operation down, close down the money accounts, and announced a guarantee of $250,000 per account so there wouldn't be further panic out there. Now, that didn't go into effect for another two or three weeks. But the summation is that if they had not done that, they estimated, or Bernanke estimated, that by 2 p.m. that afternoon, $5.5 trillion would have been drawn out of the money market system of the U.S., which would have collapsed the economy of the U.S., and within 24 hours, the world economy would have collapsed. So according to that testimony, in just the matter of two or three hours, and the question in my mind is who instigated this? How did this operate? What's, what was behind this? I don't know. But my, the, question, the, the issue here that I'm pointing out is how quickly our world could have just collapsed on that day. God's in control. But on the other hand, we have to recognize, as Konjowski went on to say in this interview, is that we're, we're not any better off than we were on September the 19th, today. Nothing, none of these stimulus bills have done what they hoped they would do. We're still in a precarious situation. We are in a three-and-a-half-year drought, as it were. And we are like Elijah sitting on, by, beside, the, uh, beside a stream, that we're going to watch dry up on a day-to-day basis. And the only thing that's going to get you and me through this is the Word of God, the promises of God, the plan of God, and we have to have this embedded in our soul because if it gets bad, it's going to get real bad. And the only thing that we're going to have to get us through is, our, is doctrine. And doctrine is going to give us as believers the stability to survive. And it's going to give us happiness and peace in the midst of whatever happens that nobody, unbelievers aren't going to have. It's going to give us a tremendous opportunity to witness. It's going to give us tremendous opportunity to share the gospel. And we can stand firm, but you can't do it on just empty hope alone that somehow things will change. It's got to be based on the only hope that counts, and that's the hope that is grounded in God's word. And that's what we see emphasize in Elijah. He understands and he's going to be taught about uh, God's sufficient grace. In verse 2 we read, Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Kareth, which flows into the Jordan. So here you have a mention of two water sources in the midst of a drought. See, the Holy Spirit just condenses things. You have to stop and think about what's actually going on here and realize that that what God has just told Elijah is that there's, you're going to announce there's a drought and then I'm going to stick you by some water that's going to go away. And you're going to have to learn how to rely upon me and I'll take care of you. And in verse 4 we read, And it shall be that you shall drink of the brook and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. Now, that's a really interesting thing because Elijah, who is a, has been drilled in the Mosaic law, has probably heard that and went, wait a minute, ravens are unclean animals in the law. So what, what is this all about? How, how is this going to work? But these are the instructions that God has given him. So we'll come back next time. We'll get into the issue here related to how we are to think, how we are to train ourselves to think in terms of uh, crisis, fear, uh, fear and worry 
And just to give you a little um, encouragement from another source, uh, somebody sent me a thing today, and one of the quotes in there was from Ronald Reagan, who said, the most terrifying, see, there's the word fear, see, that's our option, is fear or not to fear. Reagan said the most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government, and I'm here to help. <laughs> government can't solve the crisis. The crisis is, stimu- is initiated by spiritual failure. The only solution is going to be turning to God. Everything else is just, just window dressing. And we have the truth, and that is going to enable us, though, to handle what it, to face whatever happens, whatever crisis occurs. And always remember, God has a reason for this. In each of our lives, he multitasks. He has a purpose for your life. And he has a mission for us in terms of serving him. And we can't forget that. And all of this is part of our training. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be encouraged by it, to be reminded that you're in control no matter what happens. We know that you are in control and that you are going to always provide for us and that you are always going to take care of us. And the issue for us is to pass the test, to apply your word, to focus on the future and not on the current circumstances and to focus on your plan, your purpose, your provision, and your promises. We pray that you would encourage us with these things. In Christ's name, amen.